graffiti artist who's making his mark in New York City. On New York City. Banksy. 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 I've heard about this guy for years. He's like the most famous artist on earth. He's anonymous in the age where it's nearly impossible to be anonymous. Banksy has promised to create a new work of art every day this month in New York. With Banksy, you never know what happens tomorrow. British artist Banksy has been at the forefront of the popular street art movement and his quirky and political pieces have captured the attention of people worldwide. The upcoming HBO documentary, Banksy Does New York, looks at the artist's month-long New York residency. I'm here with Paul Goff. He's the Pro Vice-Chancellor and President of the College of Design and Social Context at RMIT and also author of the novel Banksy, A Bristol Legacy. He's here to talk about the film. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Sarah. Can you start by talking us through your impressions of the film? Right, the film. It's a curious thing, really. Um, What is it about? That's what I ask myself when anyone produces anything on Banksy that hasn't been through the formal offices that uh, that he runs. I say he... But really, when I think about Banksy and write about Banksy, I have to be careful, because I still think it could be he, she, or they. But for the benefit of uh, of this podcast, I'll say he. Um, so what's the film about? Well, first of all, it is a residency. It's about an artist in residence in a city. Nothing unusual in that. But it's also about a treasure hunt, or what they call in the States a scavenger hunt, It's also about, I guess, as ever with Banksy, unrequited celebrity, that you're looking for something, looking for someone, and never finding it. So it's a kind of whodunit. But it's not about money. I'm not sure Banksy will make any money out of this. Uh, I think a lot of other people might make money out of it. But essentially, it's a film about a residency and an artist capable of animating an entire city in the most extraordinary way. So you mentioned he, it could be he, she or them. So uh, to anyone that doesn't know, Banksy is completely anonymous. Can you talk us through how the director has coped with not having the actual artist in the film? That's a good question. Because what's interesting about it, I think the director's done great, great work here. Uh, partly because the director wasn't even in New York when uh, the residency took place. He was in the West Coast. And he came back afterwards and started to uh, put some requests out in the kind of social media and the blogosphere saying, if you have material in any form whatsoever, I will pay you a little bit of uh, a few dollars and you can send it through and I will collage it into shape. So you're talking 500 snippets in this collage which have now been formed into a movie uh, pushing two hours long. So it needs a kind of structure Uh, and it's quite hard to structure a collage when you haven't all the pieces and what the director does quite cleverly is he uses the 31 days of October to structure it so you have an episodic movement through the film day one day two day three day four you have that structure overlaying across that is a structure of an audio guide that Banksy has put together and put out on social media which is very very it's very funny but it's funny enough and that gives another structure over the top and then the film has a kind of uh, series of Uh, of standing parts, particular actors who appear over and over again. I say actors because some of them are very odd people. There are two rather charming people in a car who have filmed themselves travelling around New York, um, who seem to spend all the time looking anxiously out into the distance, hoping they're going to get to see the Banksy before it's been stolen, ripped off, smashed up, or whatever. And they have a genuine look of kind of um, of, of concern and anxiety and, and very little pleasure. So you get these kind of characters appearing throughout the film. 
and that's in a way how it's structured. It starts and ends in the same way. I'm not going to give anything away about that, but it's uh, it's a rather wonderful ending, uh, and it kind of gives a circular shape to the film. So they didn't need the artist because the evidence of Banksy's trail of creation and destruction is all around, and it's the audience that make the film. And in some ways, would you almost say that with street art, it is the audience that makes street art as well, because it is such an impermanent form of art that it is really about passers-by encountering it on the street and enjoying it in that way. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, I think. Um, I suppose it's about several things. It is about uh, urban intervention. Some people see street art as spoiling innocent buildings, and I'm not... I have to say, I... Some graffiti I find quite difficult, tagging I find quite difficult, uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, some of the street art where it's permitted, say in places in Melbourne, I was filming the other night in Melbourne looking at parts of it thinking, this is an extraordinary kind of palimpsest of the city here, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, which I as a, a member of the public walk past and then significantly I watch it change and I guess that's where I become an actor in the street art performance because I'm moving through this space, I'm seeing it change but I very rarely see it being created. And that's the thing with Banksy as well, nobody has seen him creating his pieces so uh, I, I imagine with this film he led people to his works via social media so social media plays a key role not only in the production of the film as being a user-generated film, but also in actually accessing Banksy's pieces. Can you talk me through that a bit? Yeah, I think that's what the director's done brilliantly. That user-generated content isn't easy. Uh, there's a vast amount of material out in the kind of uh, the blogosphere, the social media space. When I when I put my book together a couple of years ago, I assumed exactly as you did then that it's all there. It's all in the public domain. I can do with it what I like. Um, yet when we put the book together, literally a couple of years ago, we were weeks away from having it printed, weeks away from just pressing the button to see it going into production, and then all of a sudden Banksy's office, pest control office as they're called, came into play, and they're a very powerful organisation. They're extremely um, canny and persistent about managing Banksy's PR identity and the, um, the sort of syndication of the artwork. So that took me by surprise a little bit because all this stuff is in the social media. I was reproducing with my publisher all of this in the book and along came Banksy's people and said, ah, oh, you'll need permissions here. So there's a fascinating interplay between Banksy, the, uh, the sort of democratic urbanist, and Banksy as control of the image just as much as a controller of his own identity eventually we reached a reconciliation that is another story altogether we reached a, reconcili a conciliation between the two of us or between two parties and did what we had to do and entered into a kind of very interesting exchange with Banksy and his office which <laughs> again is another story but you're right in the film um, the scavenger hunt is generated by Twitter by Facebook, by Instagram, uh, by a whole load of social media leaks that take people in this crazy kind of hunt to animate and reanimate the city. So in a way the film is more about the people's reactions to the work than it is the works themselves? Ah, uh, that's, that's really getting to the heart of it, Sarah, because um, I think some of the art isn't very good and I think the reactions are much more fun. The reactions range from the two the couple in the car 
who seem endlessly to be disappointed, right through to the art critics, who seem rather sniffy about the whole thing and don't really want to get involved, through to men in ties who seem to want to exploit everything, <laughs> and gallery directors who seem to want to act as, dare I say it, kind of... Um, I shouldn't call them... No, and they're not pimps, but they kind of have this sort of strange middleman role. Uh, and so you kind of concentrate on the people and almost forget about the art. And so I think the filmmaker has to kind of try to make sure that art has its place and is foregrounded. But the problem with the art is a lot of it's not very visible for very long. So there's one wonderful sequence where... Um, a piece of art as stencil is against the the lower end of a wall and some local guys have put a board against it and are charging twenty dollars for anyone to take a photograph and then they will remove the board other bits of art are being ripped off they're getting stolen they're getting taken into uh, into the, the into garages and parking lots and then sold on so it's kind of hard to see the art and you don't really get to appreciate it and actually some of the art struggles because Banksy was working under pressure, he had to produce a new piece of work every day for 31 days, and as a result it's a bit variable. So do you think that documentaries like this one are important in capturing street art in that way? Hmm, I think they are. I think, um, I think there's no other way of actually describing the life of a city. Banksy's work is eminently reproducible, and you see it uh, on, you know, coffee mugs, on uh, posters, on um, table mats. It, it, it's it's easy to syndicate. It's easy to merchandise, and I guess that's why pest control gets so upset. And it travels very well. But the most important thing about Banksy's work is its context. And uh, I remember the BBC contacted me a couple of years ago about a piece of his artwork and said, "Is this a real Banksy?" And I have a whole series of tests just to prove that something is a Banksy. They're not difficult, but there are a couple of tests you can run past any piece of artwork. And um, that's when you know that's an authentic piece of work. So, yeah, uh, I think that the, the work that was on show um, is variable. I think that the quality is um, slightly denuded now, especially with some of the drawing and some of the stencils. But, of course, it's 31 days of real variety performance pieces, um, moving pieces, uh, sales, pitches, etc. It's a very varied kind of residency. So you said he does have to create one piece a day for 31 days. That's quite a huge undertaking for Banksy. Can you talk us through some of the work specifically? Again, you have to remember that it's not just Banksy. Um, there is a big operation behind Banksy, a big organisation, not just Pest Control, which is run by a few people, uh, and a PR agency, but he does have uh, a studio full of fabricators, animators. Um, I guess he might need kind of scaffolders as well, because there's a whole heap of, um, of organisation that needs to happen. The pieces, of, there are three or four different varieties. There are your straightforward stencils. There are some word pieces, and some of them are just stunning. Some of them are lovely, you know. When I was young, I just needed a shoulder to crayon, that kind of thing. Um, then there are some performative pieces. So uh, he performs and creates a uh, peace garden in the back of a van. And what's so interesting, of course, about this peace garden is it's the last thing by way of peace at all, because there's this immense clamour of activity. And if anything, someone in the film says, uh, Banksy knows how to play the city, and we follow. And he was brilliant during that period at creating that energy, that clamour, that rushing around. So there's mobile pieces. There is, of course, the very famous uh, uh, stall that he set up in, um, in Centre Park, uh, in the gardens there, where... Uh, and a chap sat for the best part of a day trying to sell uh, so-called real Banksy's, but 
sold very few of them and um and then there's my favorite piece of all which is the um the the kind of the the meat wagon that carries live animals around the city which is stuffed full of um toy animals all all their heads sticking out between the uh, the parts of the uh, the wooden uh, frame of the of the um the the truck and i think it's delightful it's very funny um it's scary at the same time. There's a wonderful sec- section where uh, there's a young child in a pram looking up at this meat wagon uh, and sort of recoiling from it. Um, and it's called, wonderfully, it's called Sirens of the Lambs. So that's my favourite piece of all, partly because it's so ironic and it made me laugh out loud. Yeah, I love that piece as well. And I think that was probably one of the ones that gained the most attention worldwide of uh, his residency there. You mentioned uh, the city being the context for the works. Do you think it could have been done in a place other than New York? I think New York is... There are several ways of looking at that. New York is the the home of graffiti. You know, it's the places where some of the great street artists practice their trade, from Keith Haring, uh, you could think of the Warhols, you could think of a whole range of wonderful artists who took to the streets. So to take his his um, practice into the the heartland of, um, of, of urban painting is sort of an audacious act, a typical kind of Brit act, a bit like the, the Beatles taking the US by storm. Uh, it could have been done anywhere. And my the town that I come from in the UK, the city of Bristol, is festooned with Banksy's. Many of them have gone, but it's still the the, the legacies there and the, the palimpsest of 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 Banksy's uh, creativity is there. Um, so Banksy's done Bristol and done other cities in some ways, but to take on New York within a time frame and to animate it in the way he did was quite an act of audacity. Uh, you don't get a strong sense of New York from the stencils and from the artwork. Most of it could have been done anywhere, so it's not quite as specific. But what I think is quite impactive is some of the uh, social documentary, social observation uh, interrogation. So the little animated piece he does about Dumbo, I think, is very powerful. I think the piece of observation work he does around the uh, the, the wild horses and the, the drone bombings is very powerful. So there's some very strong social commentary there that is quite uncomfortable. I don't think it's as uncomfortable nor penetrating as the work he did in Palestine on the peace wall, nor do I think the recent piece that he's done around Gaza, which are kind of timely reminders of some of the great crises that are facing the world at the moment. And because it's Banksy, it does generate a lot of headlines. And he does generate headlines, and I often wonder how he manages to do that, because in terms of his actual skills as a visual artist, I'm sure there are many around the world who are just as talented as he is, but it's something to do with the way he's able to penetrate uh, politically, I think, and also in a way that's funny. How Mm. do you think he manages to do that? I think he's. I think um, he does it partly through that mask of anonymity. People are still fascinated, despite the fact that I could tell you now and all that I know about this character Banksy, because there's a lot of stuff available, uh, who he is, when he was born, you know, and all that kind of material. So all the facts are there, but the very fact that he chooses not to expose himself to the public uh, is interesting in a world where we are desperate for personal and public attention. Everyone's desperate for their 15 minutes on the uh, the lounge of the tea, the, you know, the, the, um, the, the settee of the TV show. And he chooses not to deliberately, as if he's kind of um, uh, removing himself from that B 
celebrity kind of circuit. And so he's created this kind of um, aura uh, protected by many people who do know. When I was putting the book together, I met many, many people who knew Banksy, who had met him in all sorts of situations. They passed on a great deal of information. They were very generous, but they also wanted to respect the fact that he didn't want to enter that banal world of media celebrity. And I kind of respect that. And that's why, in a sense, I think the observations he makes globally do have a particular cachet. I'm not sure that, Sarah, they're very deep and meaningful, but the fact that they can just prod and probe and provoke has an extraordinary kind of uh, potency. That's definitely true. And and you mentioned before how he has a, an entire team, and I know that other artists like Damien Hirst have a team working for them. Do you think often it ends up that the artist becomes a brand rather than a singular entity? Inevitably, that's one way of looking at it. But what's interesting to me about Banksy is that he tries to maintain that street cred. He is very controlling about where his art goes and very controlling about uh, the authentication of his art because he doesn't want his art to go into uh, the West End galleries or to be sold on. Inevitably, it does... But every so often he makes a gesture that suggests that um, he still remembers his roots in the street, his roots as a street cred artist, his roots as um, a criminal. And I think somehow he wants to stay in that space. Uh, it's not an easy one because, you know, he's probably listed on Forbes' list of, um, of, of, of prize uh, earners. But the gestures he often makes, which are a bit uncomfortable, they are a little bit kind of... Uh, um, provocative. I mean, take two instances from the film. One is typical of his generosity. He gives a painting to a homeless charity, and there's a big fuss about that. Uh, a lot of uh, attention is paid, and the painting is sold quite soon, and that's great for the charity. The image, of course, is not a very comfortable image. It's of a kind of um, a Hitler-type figure sitting on a, on a on a bench looking out at some banal landscape. So he's generous at one level, but glib at another. So in one of his graffiti uh, uh, pieces in New York, he used the word ghetto, and there's a, a short cutaway to a, uh, an image of a black woman saying, this isn't the kind of language we want to use anymore. Who is this guy, Banksy, walking into our environment and just using language which is we find quite offensive? So occasionally, from being seen as both generous um, and anti-brand, he kind of stumbles sometimes because I think his worldliness is getting less and less kind of um, uh, understanding and maybe he kind of stumbles into places without really knowing what the context is. It's interesting that you mentioned street cred, I think, because do you think that Banksy would have had such impact if he was simply a visual artist and he weren't on the street? I Well, interesting. There's two games playing there, aren't there? Um, if, I, if you knew that since 2004... The, one of the big museums in the UK, Victoria and Albert Museum, had been collecting multiples and prints by street artists, then you'd be thinking, hold on, uh, this, is a, this is an artwork that's meant to live in the public and die in the public and be erased, defaced, overpainted, and yet these artists are also playing into the major museums. I think that you'd have to say, well, why are they doing that? I thought it was all about street. But they've got to kind of earn a cross. They've got to live as artists. And... Banksy does create multiples, does create limited editions, and it is controlled like any other artist would control it by signing signatures, by uh, edition numbers, etc. So 
I think he plays both games rather well. Uh, both are kind of the world of multiples, the world of dealers, and the worlds of sales, as well as putting the work in public spaces. But the critical part to all this is they're not just in any public space. And I think one of the great tests of any Banksy piece is where has it been placed and why has it been placed there? And there's a long list, again, I've written about this and, you know, been online talking about it uh, as to why pieces of work are put where they are. It's very rarely an accident. They're done for all sorts of uh, quite potent reasons. So brand isn't an issue for the artist but he has been turned into brand by those who vouch for him those who buy his work those who want part of his work you know we're talking about celebrity stars the David Beckhams the Angelina Jolie who once they buy they lend a certain imprint to the quality of the work whether Banksy's happy or, or comfortable with that I think is is probably quite questionable yeah that's definitely interesting just talking about straight out a bit more generally I've I've heard someone say that they think that street art is the greatest artistic movement since the Impressionists. Is that something that you would agree with, or God. talk me through that? <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly a democratic art in a way that it it shares ownership. Um, one thing that interests me about the street art movement is our fascination with process. When I watch street artists at work and for the book we did this uh, I was fascinated by the different cultures of artists if you watch someone doing a, a large tag or a large exhibition piece the quality of drawing the quality of, of understanding of space of how to animate a big surface and sometimes these are size of side of buildings is impressive you know this is what you know it, Rubens would have kind of balked at some of the scale um, and it is genuinely uh brilliant artistic practice. I've watched these, these uh, artists, often very well kind of covered, drawing from the shoulder, using um, tiny sketchbook material and looking back at it and doing all. I mean, I'm a practitioner, I'm a painter myself, and I know the kind of processes you have to go in, the agonising about trying to make a piece of work uh, sing for you. So seeing them work like that, you think, God, oh, this is a, both a democratic art form, it's highly crafted, and it lives in the public domain, and has a time-limited uh, quality to it. So it, it has done something quite extraordinary. Uh, the question you've got to ask yourself is not, is it art? You've always got to ask yourself, is it good art or bad art? And as soon as you ask yourself, good or bad, then that brings in a whole set of values that you need then to kind of quiz yourself about it, where you're coming from. The difference, if I might just say, between those free hand artists doing these huge exhibition pieces and stencilists stencilers is quite interesting I've always watched stencilers working they're very furtive by comparison they have a kind of portfolio of stencils that they, they pull out of the portfolio and they put on the wall and then they do their spraying then they put the stencil back away they're seen as much less skilled in many ways stencilers which I, I, I don't think is quite fair but I think there's a much more furtive approach to the artwork and the art making than some of the freehand uh, urban artists that I've watched and worked with so you mentioned that street art is very democratic as an art form. And do you think that's the case with the audience as well? Because I feel that sometimes the general public might feel a little bit intimidated to enter that art world of a gallery and might really think it's not their thing or they won't understand it. But with street art, they're almost forced to engage with it and therefore it becomes a little bit more popular. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, I think a lot of those, are, uh, me included, involved in the world of arts tend to assume that a gallery space is as a neutral space that people will walk into and yet for many people it's the equivalent of walking into um, a bookies to put a bet on a horse you know 
I don't go betting, and I wouldn't quite know the kind of what goes on in there. And for some people, it's as a, a gallery is as obscure and, and as confusing a space as um, as walking into any refined um, uh, kind of um, place of work. So I think that uh, the street has become the the kind of canvas, and the scale and the extensitivity of the the street space is is a sight to behold. But it's the difference is when you you make a conscious effort to go into a gallery or a museum to engage, uh, and a street art you have no you can close your eyes, but it's there and it kind of throws itself at you. And I think that we're in an interesting place now, and a city like Melbourne is especially like that, where some of the art is licensed, some unlicensed. And I've seen this happen in other parts of the world, in Bristol and in London, where the the corporate PR machine is saying, look at this remarkable artwork in the public domain. And yet, not long ago, some of those artists were being um, chastised, locked up, sentenced or whatever. So you can't have it both ways. Um, I'm still not sure. I think it still comes back to uh, certain zones in a city which are recognised as being for street art and others that shouldn't be and I think a lot of the street artists I've spoken to recognize that difference and are happy to work within that but cities are also sites of transgression and people choose to paint wherever they want to paint or can get away with it. Melbourne certainly markets itself on its street art um, globally especially to international tourists to come and check out Hosier Lane or street art around Fitzroy. How do you think we measure up? Pretty well. I was down Hosier Lane filming last night and watching people coming around and they have the same expressions as when they go into galleries but they're slightly more in awe partly of the sheer scale of ambition slightly in awe of the um, the endless layers and it's almost difficult to decode the kind of camouflage of colours and shapes that you're looking at uh, I think there's also a sense of, of admiration of the sheer kind of bravura, the bravado of some of these artists who are, uh, are working in the public in all sorts of conditions, often unpaid. I think it measures up very well. I think that some of the work is um, is pretty stunning. Uh, it would, it has to incorporate the the windows, the green walls, the railings and all the other paraphernalia of the street. Uh, I guess it's at the point where it becomes precious and you have to decide, do we paint over this? Do we keep it? How do we record it? How do we create festivals whereby everyone's invited in and then it's cleaned and started again? So it's it's a very dynamic kind of situation and um, I think Melbourne's faring quite well, although it didn't fare very well many years ago when the Banksy piece that was here was, was ruined uh, inadvertently. But, you know, I think Banksy would shrug and say, live with it, that's the life of the city, they can't stand still. Yeah, with Melbourne now, they painted over the whole of Hosey Lane and started again as part of their street art exhibition, which I thought was great. That's right. Great. Well, I think that was about... Um, we've covered all the Banksy stuff, so thanks very much, Paul, for coming in and chatting with me today. The, the film Banksy Does New York comes out on April 23rd, so get along. Thank great. you. Thank you very much.